0: Hello and welcome to Virtual Philanthropy. I'm your host, EJ Jacobs. Virtual Philanthropy is a donor-led virtual tool of the grant-making process. Donors walk us through how they find potential organisations and ultimately decide to fund them. Today's person in philanthropy is Kent Goody. Welcome, Ken.
1: Thank you, E.J. It's a pleasure to be here with you and your your listeners. Um, I'm the foundation executive for the Dorothea House Ross Foundation. Uh, We're a relatively small private foundation based here in New York, and we have a a mission of supporting uh, supporting programs that aid vulnerable children throughout the world and specifically three categories of particularly vul- particular vulnerability, disabled children, trafficked children, and refugee children. Well,
0: thank you for being here with us. If you want to tell us something about yourself and the work uh, you've done either with Dorothy House Ross or before that?
1: Yeah, um, so I've, I've had a... Um, uh, my entire career has been in and around various aspects of philanthropy. Um, I started off many years ago at the Rockefeller Foundation as a very junior program associate and uh, learned the sort of ins and outs of grant making uh, through through that position. Uh, then after a number of years, I went to the Asia Society to learn how to raise money so, I've been a fundraiser on the development side, and and back then, and now, of course, now as a grant maker. Um, and in the intervening years, I've done um, a philanthropic service, provided philanthropic services for the clients of private banks. So working with family foundations and individuals, helping them refine their philanthropic missions and creating foundations for them. So that's sort of a little bit about my background.
0: And you mentioned something interesting there. Most people I've spoken to within uh, doing virtual philanthropy, but also fellow colleagues in philanthropy, many of them have the background of being fundraisers and coming to philanthropy, but few have the background of being a donor first and then going to the fundraising side and then coming back to philanthropy. What are some of the lessons that you've learned there doing that?
1: Um, yeah, I, um, I, I, I really, I, I think that my, my, my work in philanthropy is strengthened by my. Um, my, by my work in, in fundraising. Um, um, I, I haven't really thought about starting as a grant maker going into fundraising. I, I will say that doing that I already knew had a sense of what foundations were looking for, how to, how to craft better, more specific and more targeted proposals.
0: Well, now's the time before we get started to have your shameless plug so this is your chance to unabashedly plug anything you'd like, whether it's a project, a grantee, a report, an initiative. You have a go.
1: Wonderful. Well, thank you, uh, EJ. I, I don't get that opportunity very often, so it's a great thing to uh, – um, a shameless plug. You know, we, we fund many, many I think really amazing organizations that are doing phenomenal work. So it's almost like asking for me to pick my favorite child, although that's probably not the most sensitive way to uh, uh, respond. So I'd rather not focus on one organization. I think I'd rather focus on the collaborative work I do with other funders. And I want to really put a plug in for that. So as a small funder, uh, meaning I'm the only staff person at the Ross Foundation I work a lot with funders who have more experience than I, who have greater field resources, and uh, uh, who simply know more than I do. And um, and similarly, i like to think that perhaps they benefit from some of my experiences as well. So I know that my practice has improved when I work um, in, in concert with others. And uh, I've just uh, become quite active with Elevate Children, which is a funders affinity group, um, and also a couple of the committees at Philanthropy New York. So I just put a plug in for my, my philanthropic colleagues to consider um, how you can collaborate with other funders, um, and then that that also um, helps me in in the way I will occasionally consult to other grant making organizations. And I do work with a couple of families uh, who who are looking to refine their grant making mission and create philanthropic programs for them. So it's all, it's working in concert with a number of other people.
0: Well, I, I really admire your shameless plug because you hit a couple of notes there for myself. First one being someone who also, also uh, ran a foundation alone. Uh, I know a lot about that in my time in philanthropy. Mm-hmm. And also with the collaboration, and especially other eight children. We were working with other eight children t- uh, together as well. I think collaboration is quite a big key. So I'm glad that you used your shameless plug to <laughs> plug something that's near and dear to my heart uh, collaboration. So without further ado, Take us on to your virtual tour. Let our listeners know, especially those who think that your foundation might be one that they would consider for funding, No, what's the tour? How do they go from front door to grantee?
1: It's a pretty direct walk, I think, in that at the Ross Foundation, we've refined our mission or we've we defined our mission very tightly. So when I joined the foundation, uh, it had been for 25 years Funding on what I would call a charity model dig a well build a classroom buy a jeep, etc Making 60 to 80 small grants a year Uh, The board asked me to do a strategic plan to create a far more focused grant making uh, program and with fewer larger and hopefully more strategic uh, grants so as a result, we are wedded very closely to our, our mission. Our website and uh, um, is very specific about what we are looking to fund and what we're not looking to fund. So to, to start the tour, I would ask um, that organizations read pretty closely what we're... What, we're fun- what our funding priorities are. And, uh, you know, I, I think having tight priorities are really important for all of us who work in philanthropy, both as grant makers and as grant seekers. Um, it is a huge world of unlimited need out there in the space of children, health and safety, disability, um, or in many areas. It's a huge world with an unending need. And so we have made it more focused for ourselves and for organizations about what we're interested in funding. So I think that benefits organizations cause there's, um, uh, because there's frankly from my perspective it's it's upsetting to receive full proposals even though we have a process for proposals that I'll walk you through but receive information on organizations that have nothing to do with our, our program area so I think the tour starts with looking at our website seeing the grants we we've made and we're very transparent I've listed for the five years we've been running this program um, we list we do about 15 to 17 Grants a year. They're highly detailed in our website with links to the organizations, and um, so that's a great way to start.
0: So, what's the next step once they've actually logged onto your site and they see, oh wait, we could be a match? What's that step where they get to the point where they could be your grantee? Yeah. Or actually, are your grantee?
1: Yeah, yeah, and 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 uh, so I, I'll be very honest here too. I would say most of our grantees have been referred to us by other funders or our organizations I've met in the field. That said, about a quarter of our grantees I knew nothing about and they came in via the website. So, we absolutely do fund organizations that we weren't introduced to. Um, So, what they need to do is read our program description and then send me a, a brief letter saying what their programs are and how our priorities seem to align. And then I will read it and if there's promise there, and if we have money, you know, cause we, we fund pretty We run out of money pretty quickly. <laughs> as uh, most foundations yeah, do. Yeah. I will get back to them and ask for more questions.
0: Okay. Brilliant. And what's that final step? Like what's when you've got a handful of great organizations, which ones, what makes one stand up more than the other? Um, as you've said, you've got limited funding as well. Yeah. So yeah. obviously you can't fund everybody who comes uh, looking for funding. Right. So what's the process that says, right. okay, this well, I, and
1: and and I'd add as, as far as process goes. After an organization, after there seems to be a really good fit, then I will send them a template proposal, uh, a, a, you know, proposal for them to fill out. So, so there's very little work for them to do. I don't want to burden organizations with a lot of work and assignments for uh, potential potentiality for a grant that may not may not happen. But, uh, but to, to 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 get back to your question we look for organizations that are at a place where if they had an additional bit of money they could really do something significant for their program model so we don't typically fund general operating support we, we tell organizations if you had x amount of dollars is there something you've always wanted to do Layer in a, an additional service into your model, broaden your capacity model. Capacity building, yeah, capacity building. Broaden your model to another geography, uh, partner with another organization. Um, you know, and and uh, so if if they're at that stage of development, that's what they should highlight. And those are the ones that tend to get to the top of the list.
0: So, Ken. One thing that you mentioned uh, that struck me in terms of your tools, having all the information there and and having sort of word of mouth and and meeting people who you've actually never met before being introduced. How does that factor in when you do a strategic review? How does, that, how, how does that change when you've got someone who's seen what you've done in the past and is going off of that and says, okay, we might be a good fit, but all of a sudden you've decided to move in a different direction?
1: Hmm. Um, well, it's this uh, current grant-making plan that we're running, we've been operating in now for about five years. We did a strategic review about a year and a half ago and decided we liked where we're uh, moving toward. So we haven't really done that yet, to be perfectly candid. I mean, within each each of our themes, there are sort of Emerging clusters of organizations, either geographically, and and I'd say at this point, we fund programs throughout the world, and sort of thematically. So in the disability space, we're funding more and more programs that have an element of inclusion in them. Um, In refugee and IDP programming, we are funding programs that have more and more of a a, a sort of a focus uh, uh, of empowerment of youth. Um, and in trafficking, our work is focusing more and more on prevention. So there are themes that are emerging and I make that pretty clear to organizations as we begin a discussion.
0: I'm thinking also about that space in between this, this five-year plan where you were discussing earlier about being traditionally sort of funding the traditional charity where you're funding the well, you're funding the Jeep, you're funding so on. You're not necessarily funding systemic change. You're funding more about the the band-aid, so to speak. Um, how did that go? How did you sort of move nonprofits to a space of saying, we're no longer funding in that way? Do you felt, did you feel like you got a lot of pushback from uh, grantees yeah, or yeah, people yeah. who saw who your tra- traditional grantees were?
1: Yeah, that, that that's a really interesting point. I mean, so given that the, the tradition and the history of the foundation and the desire of my board to have impact on real children in real time, uh, our, our, we tend to skew toward direct service but direct service within an arc of social change. So we'll do direct service that may be part of community-based rehab or inclusion or some element of service that's within a, a broader trend, right? The transition from funding Jeeps and wells and classrooms just just happened. We just said we have a new program. You're more than welcome to review our new guidelines, and if you feel that you, you know your program is a fit, please you know let us know, and and uh, so that's what we. That's what we did. I mean, I, I and perhaps because I was a fundraiser in the past, I really try to be sensitive not to waste people's time. So we tell potential organizations what we do and what we don't do really upfront.
0: And just to f- follow up on that, when you when you talk about the shift from going from funding traditionally to funding more systemic change and funding more uh, impact. I feel like you're you're joining a large chorus of donors who are moving in that direction. So where does that leave the uh, direct services uh, area of of the nonprofit? I'm not sort of cheerleading for that, but I I do still see that there's a need for that in some way. Do you feel like there are enough donors who are still there to fund that? Or do you think that there needs to be even a shift in how nonprofits are looking at that Mm. and how they work and operate in those spaces? Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, certainly uh, direct service providers raise money from individuals and, and, you know, more sort of the the direct mail, individual uh, online sort of fundraising. Um, We fund direct service though. So, so for example, a typical grant of ours might include uh, uh, layering in a new service to a population of 200 kids. Um, working with their families to increase the, the parents' ability to care for the child and doing inclusion events in the town. And then the fourth piece might be a little bit of advocacy on the, uh, on the state or national level. So almost all of our grants, I mean, maybe we're trying to have it all at once, but we, we try to have a, a piece of service, a piece of community outreach, and a piece of advocacy in each one.
0: So it feels like you've almost answered the next section in much of what you've said already, but I'm still going to pose it to you. The idea of mistaken identity. It, clearly on your website, you can make sure that people understand what you fund and what you don't fund. But in those spaces where you're at a, a conference or you're at a, a, an event where people might come up to you and say, okay, I sort of did a quick Google. Uh, or they don't do the Google. Someone says, oh, you should meet Ken. And they start talking about what they do and how they might be a good fit. And they clearly don't understand what you do. How do mm. you sort of, Navigate the mistaken identity part.
1: Well, I try to be nice about it, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> I know, you're barking up the wrong tree. No, I, I, I say that that's really interesting because I'm sort of a philanthrop, nerd, so I'll talk to anybody about their programs. I'm genuinely interested, so I'll ask a few questions, and but I'll make it pretty clear that that sounds really great, but that's not really what what I'm funding right now. And if worse comes to worse, I can always rely on my board, uh, you know, isn't interested in that, so. Oh, so, the beautiful uh, board to, yeah, well, the board, is, the, the <laughs> the board is always
0: at its best when it can be used in <laughs> situations like that where you can say, oh, my board won't go for it. But of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. But
1: uh, I, I try to do it graciously. So
0: and, and you've done it. I've actually seen you in, in action and you've been very graceful when telling people they've they've got the wrong man uh, for their mission. <laughs> so give me some do's and don'ts in terms of what people should do and not do in terms of getting into the door for DHL Foundation.
1: Yeah. Um, well, uh, again, read our material, and and uh, so in in my career, I've been a fundraiser, I've been a grant maker, I've done some business work, and and I you know I I've done a, a whole bunch of things, and and uh, I always try to I always advise people, particularly young people now starting out, to try to understand where the person you're talking to is coming from. Uh, Try to present what you're presenting in ways that they might respond to. Now, I'm not suggesting you lie or you fabricate or you try to get into their head and you do all all sorts of backflips, but rather than launching into a, we do X, Y, and Z, this is really great, and that's fine, but try to understand where the other person is coming from. So, case in point, the Ross Foundation funds programs for children. Now they're on on the margins. We also fund programs for sixteen to eighteen year old transition ages, and but you know I, I can't tell you the number of times I've gotten I've gotten um, information or been talking to somebody, and they say we do really great work for you know for young parents or 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 you know a family income and and you know uh, in environment and, and a whole range of things that are super important that do benefit children's lives. But, you know, I'm only funding programs that um, are, are specifically created for children. So, I, I, I guess I'd say the don't would be, if it, if it doesn't make sense, don't push it. Okay. Now, having said that, if I'm engaged with somebody and, and I kind of like what they're saying and their interest, organization says it's interesting, I might think, in the back of my mind, hmm, maybe so-and-so might be interested in them. And I've been known to make introductions for people who are out of my program, but into some, somebody else's program area that I know. So it's, so it, it, it behooves people to, to begin a discussion with a grant maker in an open-ended way.
0: I, I, listening to that last part there, and I mean, it sounds like another variation of don't put a square peg in a round hole. But the way you phrase it, actually, I want to just explore briefly. You said, if it doesn't make sense, don't push it. I don't know necessarily if every nonprofit knows that it doesn't make sense. So how do we educate them in terms of what makes sense, what doesn't make sense? Because I think they're always trying to sort of find an overlapping alignment somewhere, or feeling mm-hmm. that you might actually be generous enough to sort of see the connection there. How do you? How do they educate themselves to know when that's not really the road they should be taking? Well, Especially when they know that you're actually a collaborator, they feel like okay, he's, if he's out there collaborating with other people, yeah, he might know someone.
1: It's an interesting question let's let's sort of dig into that I, I, I think that um, I'm always open to d- discussions with with people and uh, I, I want to be helpful um, I try not to promise more any certainly anything more than I can deliver um, but I, I, I'd say that that on the other side there has to be um, mutual consideration um, so if some, I, I've been in situations, EJ, where people have been sort of aggressive, and that's I don't I don't like that. I mean, I, I you know because I can't fund them. So regardless of how important the program is, I can't fund you. My I'm, genuinely, my board, you know, won't yeah. go there, right? So I, I I would just ask for sort of the same consideration that I give that I give uh, uh, others. Now, I'm not saying, you know, feel sorry for the grant maker, but, um, it, you know, to, to establish a productive relationship, there should be some some ground rules for that. I um,
0: think it's funny that you said, feel sorry for the grant maker, as if the grant maker is a placeholder for something as opposed to a human being.
1: Yes, exactly. Because
0: at the end of the day, you are a human being and putting you in a position where you have to sort of say no, even though you wouldn't mind saying yes if you had the resources, yep. but you just simply don't yep. have the resources, yeah. it gets ignored.
1: I, I, I have to. Tell I, I've really stopped going to, there are a number of uh, events, as you know, for grant makers where you can go and meet, it's almost speed dating, meet 20 or 30 potential grantees and I find those dispiriting and depressing and and not really productive So uh, because I end up um, knowing very quickly whether a person's organization is right or not, but they want to continue to develop a relationship and, and I just can't do that with everybody. So I've got to say no a lot. And <laughs> it's, it's just not something I enjoy doing as a person.
0: You know? But as a grant maker, you've got to have a lot of experience with saying no just because
1: a- it's a of the beast. Yeah. A- absolutely. But it's a little bit more difficult to say no when, you, when you've got somebody, an interesting, enthusiastic person in front of you who's got a really interesting program but that, that you can't fund. You gotta say no right on the spot is a little bit more difficult than sending an email,
0: right? Yes. <laughs> and you and you can't avoid that in person. What would be advice that you would give to people in that space when they're doing the speed dating and they're yeah. trying to tell you about an organization and you realize it's not a fit, where does the conversation go? Because yeah. normally it's three and, minutes, yeah. but then in, in 30 seconds, you know, they're not necessarily yeah. someone you would fund.
1: Okay, he, he, here's a real piece of, a piece of advice. And, and we're all open to, uh, I, I think we're all open to wanting to talk about ourselves. So if I were, uh, and, and I've been, and I'm on boards of organizations also, so I'm always raising money, right? Yeah. We're all in fundraising mode full-time. I'd much rather engage the funder and learn about them and their foundation than tell them about me and my foundation. So if I really do my homework, if I'm listening carefully, I might turn around and take a couple notes on their card. I'll send them a note two days later. It's quite Maybe funny you say that later. because yeah.
0: I do the exact same thing. Once yeah. I know that it's not necessarily a fit for something that I could support or my foundation formally could support i immediately just want to know more about them and it becomes they get the entire allotted time as opposed to sort of splitting that half and half just because i really want to know what makes them work and if i feel like i'm they've used that time wisely i it it empowers me to go and actually talk to other people on their behalf and say, okay this is someone you should definitely get
1: to know exactly
0: so it's good to know we were actually aligned on that one there <laughs> what are some experiences that you would like to sort of share in terms of the good times and bad times in uh philanthropy that grant makers as well as grant uh, grantees and potential grantees uh could learn from
1: um I, you know i th- th- this is one of the blessings of this job i've had many many really great experiences and moments i mean i as i mentioned in the beginning i fund some really terrific organizations that are doing phenomenal work Uh, and I'm lucky enough to go to the field a couple times a year to see some work. I've just gotten back from a trip to Guatemala where we funded the opening of four computer centers in indigenous villages and uh, as part of that I got to go to the opening of one of them and, and so a group of local people and some funders and uh, you know, met the kids, and then we were assigned to a kid in the classroom, and they'd actually begun their computer training six weeks earlier, but um, but so I, you know, paired up with a, with a child, and this kid was, I think, 11 years old. So he took, he had our, our picture taken, he downloaded it, he then up he then uh, created a document about himself and what he's interested in doing and he interviewed me and he created this document about you know him and his school and the Ross Foundation I mean it wasn't an ask certainly but it showed technical expertise that an 11-year-old did on the computer that was brilliant and you know this is some this is a Mayan village deep in you know remote Guatemala so it was a beautiful um uh, a, a, you know a demonstration of the work we're funding and a real great personal connection with it with a child who was there to do it so That's uh, great it, it it was really lovely and and uh, you know I, I've had so many so many highs and and exp- so many experiences good experiences that uh, um, you know they, they're almost uh, uh, innumerable um, and you know lows. you know I mean so we've had a couple of grants that haven't worked out as we'd hoped um, prior when I was working entirely with families on their philanthropy, some, uh, donors were more interested in making grants to their grandchildren's school to pay for their tuition and other self-serving sort of thing, kind of using philanthropy. I, I really dislike when people, you know, use philanthropy for their own benefit it happens a lot. Uh, so those are sort of the, some of the lows, I guess. Yeah.
0: Brilliant. Now I know where to send my mother to learn how to actually upload and download.
1: She'll she spend, should go to Guatemala. Yeah, to, one-way to, trip to to, uh,
0: to Guatemala, <laughs> and then she'll finally know how to send photos back to me. So uh, almost before we end, I, I want to ask you a few questions. These are actually questions coming from uh, one from my book, as well as a couple from sure. nonprofits uh, who have either tried to get a grant from you or are familiar with your, your foundation. Uh, so the first question is, what advice would you give to a fundraiser or grantee who is working for a new organization that is yet to deliver on metrics or impact or its theory of change because it's such early days?
1: That's a really, really great question. So, um, uh, we tend to fund organizations that are well established and have program models with good track records. That said, and in fact, we talk about this in our guidelines, new organizations. Um, And we'll fund new organizations typically that have staff that have worked in the field for a while, so they've got significant experience and track record they can talk about. But I think, as with any organization, established or new, so in this case, we're talking about a brand new organization that hasn't really proven its deliverable, Um, they've got to be, they've really got to document the need. And they've got to show me and document why they're the best organization to meet that need and if they can do those two things then we will consider funding a new startup organization
0: thank you for that uh, the next question how do you decide whether to focus support on combating stigma of people with disabilities or improving livelihoods both are important but donors seldom them all for financial support for both okay.
1: That's that's an that's another interesting question. I, I I think I might take issue with the question. Okay, um, I'm
0: just to suggest on it,
1: <laughs> not 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 really take issue, but 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 it's it sets up sort of a false premise that um, you know inclusion and livelihoods are separate, and I think they're really one and the same. So to me, combating stigma is the, the best way to do It's through inclusion, um, uh, and, and I think that's been shown. Uh, all over the world, and I've seen it that where um, you know adults or children get to know and meet disabled adults and children, um, th- they, they, there is much more acceptance and um, and uh, full inclusion for 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 the for the disabled person and. To, so improving livelihoods. Well, to improve livelihoods, you've got to, uh, th- th- there needs to be um, a, a, a sense of, of inclusion. So, um, so I, I, I would say that they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. But, but then to, to the point, a number of the uh, education programs we're funding in the disability area are focused on sort of mainstreaming and inclusion, including disabled children in with non-disabled children in vocational schooling and, and other vocational settings. I think the person who thought of this question may have faced a situation which funders do a lot, and I've been guilty of it, I'm sure we all have, where we're almost looking for a way to say no quickly. So if somebody says, we're funding, you know, um, vocational training work. Well, then I'll say, okay. Well, I'm sorry. We don't fund vocational training work. You know, or, or, or. But, but I think more, more apt. We're funding disability work, uh, and there's a vocational training component to it. Well, we don't fund that. Or, um, you know, in, in any any realm. So I think maybe this person has been told that to all (laughs) has been, has experienced that.
0: Yes. And I I would say I've seen it in action. I try really hard. I've tried really hard to not fall into that because I do see sometimes you're missing something And the minute you have those keywords that don't pop up in the first five or 10 seconds, you immediately go, okay, not a fit. And I've seen it happen with someone when they get to the point of the finish line of what they're meant to be pitching for. Uh, you can see uh, a connection. We actually were just in an event uh, the other day for Refuge Point and uh, Sasha Chanoff, who's the ED, When I met Sasha the first time he was talking about refugee work and I said, well, we don't work with refugees. I had just taken the meeting with him very briefly and thought, okay, this will go very quickly and I'll I'll send him on his way once we're done. But once I'd actually let him go through what he had to say, and obviously he's quite a charismatic person, uh, we were funding refugee work. (laughs) And I think not because we were stretching ourselves out of our comfort zone, but we actually were able to find a very easy uh, alignment uh, based on the picture that he was able to paint. But had I sort of cut him off at the knees at the beginning, that
1: wouldn't have happened. Absolutely, and and, and we certainly find this in the disability field. Um, so Ross Foundation funds child programs in these three specific areas, but I can't tell you the number of times grantees have told me, "Well, we're trying to raise money for you know child education, but as soon as we mention disability, the funder says no, um, or refugee, the funder says no. Well, if a funder is interested in education or arts or EC, early childhood development or uh, teen empowerment, you know, t- teen empowerment is a great case in point. There are disabled teens that need to be empowered. There are refugee teens that need to be empowered. Um, and certainly uh, th- that's a big piece of trafficking prevention, but but uh, uh, often organization, funders will say, well, we don't do that. And uh, so it, it's to our detriment. So uh,
0: just another question before I get to the final question from the other nonprofits and um, you're alone as as you've mentioned before in terms of going out there and funding. So how do you bring on other donors who may feel like, they're in that same space where they say, we don't fund that, but you see an alignment there where they may not be willing to immediately, or do you find that donors are more open to listen to you as another as a fellow donor, yeah. uh, a co funder possibly, than they would a non-profit? Yeah,
1: I, I think so. So in in fact, I just was a co-sponsor and, and a co-moderator of a panel at Philanthropy New York that uh, talked about disability funding. Shameless plug. Uh, That is a shameless plug. That's right. Uh, And, and how, you know, Uh, You don't have to be a, quote, disability funder to fund inclusion and uh, programs that benefit all sorts of audiences uh, in the arts, in education, in environment, whatever it might be. So we had a whole program focusing on not on shaming other funders into why aren't you funding disability, but just think of how bigger your impact would be when you realize that 10 to 20 percent of the world's population are disabled in one way or another if you're looking for impact in education and arts, well, with teeny, often very small adjustments to a program model, you can um, uh, you know, incorporate a whole new population of people. So that's the way we try to tack it. Again, focusing on what their mission is. Okay, your mission is arts? That's great. I can deal with that. But let's think about how you can make those programs inclusive.
0: I think that might be something that also nonprofits listening to this could also feel like they could adopt in terms of how they speak to certain donors. Absolutely,
1: well. I think that's really a, 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 a possibly a, a you know a good takeaway. Sure.
0: Brilliant. Yeah. So, one final question for the nonprofits: uh, We often hear as a nonprofit not to force a square peg into a round hole. Like we've just discussed that. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to alignment, as an organization focused on mental illness, we tend to think of ourselves as a good fit with foundations focused on global health or disability health, but are often so that mental health is not a significant part of their portfolios. How do we better inform funders in this sector about the importance of mental health in a way that doesn't feel like we're trying to make an uncomfortable alignment?
1: Yeah, that's and that's sort of what we've been talking about, but but this question is is good because it's so direct. And I would say, how do we better inform funders in this sector about the importance of mental health? I would suggest that most, you know, reasonably intelligent funders understand the importance of mental health. I don't think they need to have that identified to them. I think they need to, they need you to be creative in, uh, in, in showing them how their programs that are focused on allied fields um, can also have an impact in the area of mental health. Uh, or, or, or to show them that um, uh, there, there really may be a line. Show them, don't tell them. So think about what you're doing. Think about what they're doing. Be c- Nimble on your feet and just sort of make a beginning connection. I, many times I've talked to organizations that I thought, oh, this is really not going to work. And the more I hear them, the more I think, huh, maybe it would work. So, for example, what you and I recently attended an event focused on refugees, and uh, um, our focus, as you know, was on children. And there were a number of things said in that presentation that made me realize that there could be uh, a greater alignment with with my program, with my my mission. So um, I, it, it's just me being open-minded and the speaker being, um, uh, being a little bit... Uh, be, being sort of open-minded also, you know, uh, Does that make sort of make sense? It Um,
0: does. And you touch upon something that I I, I often talk to nonprofits, especially ones I'm working with as well as mentoring, uh, the idea of charisma versus agility. hmm. And yes, charisma is amazing and you need that. And it really sort of gets you much further than someone who doesn't have charisma. But agility is also equally, if not more important. You need to be able to sort of figure out how an organization that's willing to work with you can work with you. based on something that you may not have in front of you, how do you actually, uh, without actually bending the the truth and saying, oh, we can do this for you, but really sort of having an open mind in terms of what you're able to accomplish within your organization. Well, I always say, just because I have to say that while funding the core, I always feel like you never want to have an organization, a, a philanthropic organization, come in and fund Something that you're not doing, without actually making sure the core is uh, yeah uh, is is still being supported. Absolutely. Yeah. So
1: and 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 just one one more follow-up from my uh, uh, perspective on that is that um, so that, again the person says what can I do to make them you know realize um, I, I'm probably not going to follow up with someone like that because they've got an agenda they're shoving down, steamrolling me with. But if you're if the person is engaging and interesting and they're thinking, then I I will think about them. And it's like, I'd sort of like to talk to them again. Yeah. That's the sort of person I want to take a, second, take a meeting with.
0: Yeah. So I'm actually going to get you out of here on one final question. Yeah. Uh, it's about the future, the thing we love so much. Uh, so I want you to tell me, what is something in five years from now that you wish you would be able to look back on with pride that your philanthropy has accomplished?
1: Hmm. I would say looking back that, and I don't know that I'll ever be able to do this, but in some cases, as I stay in touch with programs, that that, that we've not only helped and made a significant improvement in the lives of the children that were provided services and, and, and related activities during the life of our grant, but that children continue to be, the lives of children continue to be improved. Children we, we've never met or didn't know about or new children brought to an organization receiving services that we've created, helped create something that continues to serve children. So I, I think that that's what I would hope for that, you know, and, and this gets back to we, we are a service provider. So making sure these children are getting you know, rehabilitation services or vocational training or empowerment, you know, the current cohort, that's really important. But we're funding organizations that are going to be doing work hopefully for many years. So that's my hope in the future that those organizations and programs that we funded are still ongoing and providing services to kids.
0: Thank you very much, Ken, for joining us today and for lending your great expertise to the philanthropic community.
1: Great. You're welcome, EJ. Thank
0: you. This has been... Virtual Philanthropy. Have a great day.